All right, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for attending today. If you're new, like uh, Spence said earlier, we're glad you guys are, are here. Thanks for coming. Uh, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John. Uh, Peter was kind of praying along these lines, so if you didn't uh, know that, now you know here. Uh, but we are in chapter 4 today, starting to wrap up chapter 4. Um, it is a um, longer gospel account, a book of the New Testament that a lot of you I know are familiar with, so we'll be in it for um, quite a, a while longer here, but um, making some headway. Uh, today is part three of uh, that time that Jesus talked at length with a Samaritan woman uh, at a well about the gospel, essentially. And uh, as he's doing this, he's subverting law and tradition, uh, and all along uh, teaching us more about what the kingdom of God was going to be like. Uh, today we introduce more characters into the story, um, and the, uh, the disciples come back from grocery shopping, essentially, in town and are confronted with an image that's uh, problematic for them. And then other Samaritans are hearing the good news from the woman as well, which is kind of cool. So uh, we'll talk about all of that and also hear more from Jesus on the true nature of um, his mission, where we fit into that equation. We'll kind of finish the Samaritan woman's story arc. Lots of things today will start to wrap up, but it's a, it's a three-part mini-series of, uh, of sorts just because of length, I, like I mentioned last week, but this is the longest kind of individual uh, discourse uh, from Jesus with another person that we have in the New Testament, which is in and of itself uh, kind of neat. So, uh, but today is uh, part three of, of three. So John 4, today we're going to look at this theme of the harvest, John 4, 27 to 45. If you have a Bible or phone app and want to turn there, please feel free. Uh, this will all be on the screen. So let's read this in full to begin. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why were you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. Okay, so what I want to do today is come at this passage from three different vantage points, from three different, three different people's or groups of people's perspectives. We'll talk about the disciples first, and then again, we'll kind of finish the woman's story arc, and then we'll hear from Jesus at uh, the very end. Just kind of get your bearings with that. So the disciples first kind of starts with the disciples coming back again from town with food, and they uh, basically have, they don't voice this, 
uh, question, but they, they, they have it kind of in their own hearts. Why are you talking to a woman? So um, if you were here two weeks ago, we, uh, we were talking, we started the whole story basically uh, talking about the lawlessness and the cultural improperness of a Jew like Jesus meeting with a Samaritan. And now we're shifting to the issue of a man speaking with a woman. And so there's more uh, boundary crossing taking place here, uh, at least on a cultural level. Uh, but this type of conversation at a well, in private, uh, it just didn't happen, especially for a rabbi and a, a perceived leader. Uh, so we may not feel that uh, as much as uh, they did in the first century, but it's just important to understand that we kind of have, like we did two weeks ago with the Jew Samaritan thing, we have this, um, this just doesn't happen. Uh, kind of uh, moment here. There, I think uh, a couple weeks ago it was like a how can this be from the woman, right? How can a Jew like you talk with a Samaritan uh, like me? There was just too many walls, too many boundaries, uh, too much improperness uh, that it just, it just never happened. So um, on one level, this is just a, a maybe on the more obvious level, this is a sign of radical inclusivity. Uh, it, it's a sign, as we said a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, that as the horizontal relational fissures between different types of people are beginning to be fixed by Jesus, uh, that we have this additional sign on top of that, that uh, there is a time coming when the vertical breakdown in our relationship with God would be fixed. So um, it's just important to see that in the Bible. I know some of you are brand new to this, so I just want to encourage you with that, that um, any type of horizontal relational breakdown that, you, that you've had with somebody, uh, whether it's someone you love or a stranger, any type of envy or jealousy or misunderstanding or meanness or anger or hate, parent to child, anything, all of that is a reflection of the, the um, disconnectedness that you have with God. It, it all flows from that. This goes way back to the beginning of the Bible. It was first... Adam and Eve's breakdown in the relationship with God that led to their bickering at each other, that led to Cain's murder of Abel. That comes after the primary thing, which is that we've gone our own way. We've disobeyed God. We have become our own kings and queens of our universe. We have sinned, and the Bible says, fallen away from or short of uh, God's perfectness, his glory, his holiness. Um, so the order there is important. So applying that to this, this passage then, more than a lesson on gender equality, though that is happening here and should happen in church communities because in Christ there's no male or female. There's no partiality. There's no um, decision based on our bloodline or based on our good works or in this case chromosomes that turns God's head one, one way or the other. It's completely by grace. All right. So, But more than a lesson though on gender equality, this is a sign of the greater idea that we have reconciliation with God. Uh, between, there's reconciliation now between God and his enemies, God and outcasts uh, like, like us. And so maybe it helps us to understand the true point here to think that, you know, um, if someone saw Jesus talking to you, uh, others would gasp in horror at the injustice. Uh, or I was thinking this week on my side of things, like if someone ta- saw Jesus talking to Chris Walker, uh they should gasp in horror because I'm that terrible of a person, like the injustice of it. So to kind of place yourself in the place of the woman um, and gender aside, just to say she was an outcast and, and the improperness of the idea that God would talk at all to us 
or look our direction should make us gasp. It should make us gasp in horror. Like it should be like this, the greatest of injustices. And if it's not, there's a problem with our theology of sin and we think too highly of ourselves. Um, the bad people out there, um, maybe there's a lesson for us to learn something about the love of God, but when it comes to us, that wouldn't be the case. That, that's a problem uh, in, in many ways. Interpretationally, theologically, as we live our lives, it just leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, pride being probably the, the biggest. Missing the gospel, I guess, would be the biggest. But, um, so maybe it helps us to view it that way. You know, maybe you've heard the, uh, the, the statement before, or thought this before, the idea of, um, oh, I can't believe she ended up with him. You ever, ever heard that before? Think about it. I, I watched a movie yesterday where that actual line was in it. It's all over, like, literature and movies. How'd they end up together? How did Aletha, uh, you know, why did, why'd she marry Chris? I mean, oh my gosh, you know, th- those kind of things. Um, but if you've ever, like, thought that about a couple, like, a friend uh, who are friends or strangers, like, that's what we're talking about. There's this kind of, like, how did that happen? Well, the theology is we're the person that, is like that causes the injustice. We're like, like the worst person, the, the rougher edges person, like the woman here, that Jesus is starting to show with his actions that um, God is fixing problems in the world on a basic level. God's allowing reconciliation, closeness, conversation, friendship, atonement from sin to begin to happen. It's beginning to break into the world with this, uh, this and many other conversations uh, like it. And so it changes things, right? Like it, it moves us from reading this and saying, oh, isn't that nice that Jesus is helping outcasts over there of which I am not a part to I am the outcast. Like do you see the difference? It, it, it's a matter of is Jesus like doing something here for us to copy? Like if you don't see yourselves as the woman, you're going to say the lesson here is that I would go and do what Jesus is doing. Because I am the good person like Jesus, and there are outcasts over there that, that are um, worse than me, and my point is to go and sort of, or at least different from me, and the point is to go and kind of act like he is, but that's not the main point. I mean, there might be some semblance to which Christians, you know, sort of live uh, under the banner of this idea, and of course reconcile with enemies. That's a very Christian idea. Not the primary idea, though. If, you, if you're not the woman then you're going to view this as an emulating Jesus idea and not a gospel idea. Because emulating Jesus is not the gospel. You copying Jesus' actions is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. might be a good thing, might be something that you do with your life and the church does, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God died for your sins. That's the gospel. So we can't add to that the secondary things. The secondary things need to exist apart from that main thing so that they don't have to bear the weight of saving sinners because emulating Jesus cannot bear the weight of, of saving, saving sinners. All right? So going back then to John 4, the, the, the disciples uh, seem to miss all of this. And we, don't, we can't totally get in their head here. It's just a passing verse, so we don't totally know what they were thinking. But we do know that they were like shocked that this would even be happening, uh, that Jesus, as a man, would be talking to a woman but if you think about their question, why are you talking to a woman? To further get at this idea of what I was just talking about, it's not that different from questions like this, like from Luke 5, 29. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? These are like other forms of like outcasts of, of that first century society. Uh, it's the same question, 
right? If you don't know this about the New Testament, uh, questions like this are strewn throughout the Gospels because Jesus is doing things that are at best improper, at worst actually lawless when it comes to Old Testament law. He, he's, pick your word, subverting, going around, or breaking Old Testament law and tradition uh, for the sake of something new. Um, but whatever your word is or idea on both levels, uh, Jesus is doing something new, something that the law didn't allow for, something that at least tradition uh, said was taboo. And so he's doing this. But this is the same question, and uh, when someone asks this question, it's, and it's usually a re- religious majority culture you know, ty- type person in other parts of the New Testament, but um, at the core of those questions, though, these questions, isn't just cultural rule-bending, but theology. People ask those questions, think they're better than those they're asking about. Like, if you ask this question, you inherently think you're better than the them, right? Than, than the they, or than the, than the people that God would have the audacity to have dinner with and not me, right? We think, we, we think inherent in this question that we're better. Otherwise, we wouldn't ask it. We wouldn't be shocked, Right? And when we think we're better than other people, we're operating off a comparison-based mindset, a works-based mindset. We, we think we have the right scorecard. We think we understand how God thinks. We think we understand what it means to be whole and made, um, uh, made well and saved, but we don't. The disciples were, sh- at the end of the day, the disciples were shocked here because they thought they were better than, and more worthy of being approached by Jesus than the woman. You guys remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? Jonah has the same question before God. It's it's like at the end of the book, or at the beginning of the book too. It's like when when God's like, I want to save your worst enemy, Jonah said, the the, the Ninevites? The Assyrians? The arch enemies of Israel? You want to show kindness and grace to them? Well, what's inherent in Jonah's question? I'm more worthy than, we're more worthy of you saving us. We're, we're better people. We are more morally upright. So you should, you should do something better and more, and more intentional for us on those levels and punish them. See, the injustice of grace sort of kind of bubbles up here in these Old Testament stories as well. Well, whether it's the disciples or Jonah or the Pharisees or other people in the story, Whoever it is, they are pictures of the human propensity we all have to compare and to cast judgment on who is worthy of salvation based on our own moral compass, as if we are the standard. But John 4 teaches us Jesus doesn't judge based on rightness or wrongness because none are good. So how can he? There's no, like, there's no scales here because uh, none are good. Or maybe there are scales, but it's completely like this, right? Like there's, no, there's nothing on the scale of the good side. And so Jesus comes to expose that, and, and he does so with his words sometimes, or he does so with word pictures. Everything he's doing with this woman is screaming these ideas, if not explicitly, implicitly. He came to bring love. I, uh, yesterday I saw this new movie out. You guys heard of this movie um, called the Death on the Nile? It's an Agatha Christie story. You guys heard of this? It just came out. Um, it's okay, but uh, I I'm not like endorsing. I'm just saying... Um, the, there's a lot of quotes on love. I was kind of surprised there was all these, I haven't read the book, but, um, so I don't know if it's from the book, but I, I was surprised all these quotes on love were in it. I was, I was just trying to 
that's just in my memory watching the movie because I'm going to get my phone out and you know, start typing it. But Jane, my daughter, helped me remember this. But this is one of the quotes from the movie from the main character's uh, individual says, love treats our worst traits as minor inconveniences, our flaws as freckles. And I really like that. I, um, when I heard that, I thought, this is exactly what we're seeing in John 4. Um, and here's the thing, guys. The law not only doesn't do that, it can't. This is why we're at pains, as the Bible is at pains, to differentiate Jesus from the old commands and from a law, tit-for-tat way of thinking because they operate on completely different bases and rules. You can't blend them. You can't say that Jesus came into the world to bring grace, uh, but to reconstitute the Old Testament law and way of living with God that the Israelites did. You can't. And they're meant to contrast completely because the, the one is worse and the second is better. Uh, the one, though typifying and prophesying about the latter, it meant, was meant to give way. It was like a tutor, like an in-home uh, teacher, from Galatians 3, if you remember this, who, who, was, who served his or her purpose, but now, now we're, we're out of the home. We don't need that anymore. It led us to Jesus. Now faith is here. And this is why we talk about these things, because the rules are different. The, the, the basis for how we relate with God are completely different. Christians love to blend these things. And it usually comes from this uh, false notion that everything in the Bible is created equal, that it's all um, like... Uh, everything is on the same level, but the Bible itself doesn't operate that way. So you guys shouldn't either. It, it, it calls parts of it better and other parts of it worse, parts of it like the sun, parts of it like the moon, uh, parts of it preparatory, parts of it reality, parts of it shadow, parts of it substance. Uh, Jesus himself, even like uh, we saw last week, he says, the time is coming and is now here, uh, which is helpful interpretationally because he's saying, what I'm doing now is not totally it. This isn't the essence of what it means to be a Christian, that you should go to the town square and be kind to people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what, what, a time is coming when I will meet sinners at the well of salvation, but it's going to be full of my blood, not water. The Bible itself operates by these rules. And so, uh, it's, and it's the same here. The, the law does not treat you, um, it treats you fairly but unjustly, but not to your benefit. Like the law punishes us for sin. If it's a crime worthy of prison, it's right for the law to do that. But love, uh, I quoted Bono last week, I didn't mean to do it again, but here we go, uh, said in an interview seven years ago, that, uh, or several years ago, that uh, love, his own story, love interrupts the consequences of our actions. And I think he says, which is good news for someone like me because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. He didn't say, he didn't say stuff, but you know, he said. So, but he said, I've done a lot of stuff and I, um, it's, it's good news. If, if you want to live by the commandments, then you need to be perfect. If you aren't, uh, you're self-condemning. And Jesus here is saying, I came to bring an, un, an injustice towards sinners. I'm not treating you fairly. I'm treating you unfairly. But it's good news for you because I will also be treated unfairly on the cross. The only one who does not deserve death, I will face it. And I will die in your place, and you will live forever. But here we have this, again, this, uh, this idea that the law does the opposite. Uh, but with Jesus, this, this idea here, with Jesus, with Jesus, this is never more true. Never more true. And it, come, it came at a great cost. Great cost. His own life. We'll come to that later. 
Okay, with the woman, uh, we'll look at this idea now of kind of finishing her story arc again, looking at um, how she left her jar behind. We'll talk about, a little bit about conversion and evangelism. So much here. It's definitely its own sermon, uh, but we're not going to spend that much time. But we'll say this. I, I really, man, I think that um, this is one of the more powerful images we get, endearing, really, uh, in this passage is that of the woman leaving her water jar behind and going just to tell others about Jesus. Uh, it is, I think, kind of the epitome of the Christian life in, in a lot of ways. Um, this would be the equivalent of a carpenter leaving behind his hammer on the ground or a nail gun and walking away. She's leaving her tools, her work, her livelihood, not unlike some of the disciples left their fishing nets. Do you remember those stories? Uh, Peter and Andrew I think we're the first two, but they left their fishing nets. They left their job, this symbol of what they did for a living. They left it behind. They walked away from that to Jesus, the person, and they, and they, and they followed him. And, and the point of all that's not to say that people need to quit their jobs in order to become Christians. And I, that probably goes without saying, but just in case. Again, this is why you have to resist the temptation to moralize these stories. Like, this is not a moral to follow. Like, oh, she left her water jar, so I should leave my hammer, my computer, you know, my um, whatever symbolizes the essence of your work. That's not what it's saying. Uh, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor. It's an allegory. It's an illustration of what happens when we become a Christian, and that is we leave our works. We, uh, we leave our monotonous, never-ending, and never-quite-working religious masquerade, and we tell people about Jesus freely. That's basically kind of this one swoop. We, we do that every day and kind of once throughout our whole lives. Uh, it's this one turning from the old to the new, from ourselves to Jesus. And, um, and maybe that's a lesson that we learn from her here. This is one of the reasons why I love the character of the Samaritan woman. Um, and it's not even something that's super clearly stated, but you just can't avoid it when you read it, is that um, she's so free, isn't she? This is like... A picture of a woman who's so incredibly free. Uh, she, she is so, she has the lightness about her. Um, the, the lesson I was thinking, though, is that I don't think you can evangelize people if you don't know that you're loved. And uh, maybe, maybe you can a little, but it's harder, you know? I, I think that it's really hard to tell someone about Jesus and evangelize them properly and well from the right motive if you don't first know that you're loved by God. Um, and so, more important than reading a book on evangelism, you know, or me standing up here for 20 minutes telling you guys to evangelize people better, you know, is, is, the, is basking in the undeserved grace you've been shown by Jesus, like the woman here, because that's probably more likely going to lead you to want to talk about him more with others. It's going to fill your natural way of talking about your life and how you spend your time and what you value. The more you understand what God paid to save you, how much he loved you. Uh, and so, and so, so she says, like looking at what she says on the topic of like evangelism, when she says, he told me all that I ever did, you know, which maybe is a bit overstated, you might, and you might look at that and think, that's like the world's worst evangelism pitch ever. Like he told me everything I ever did. Like what, what, what is that, how is that gonna like, and this is before the cross, right? So we have to understand kind of the epoch here. It's still pre-cross and pre-gospel. Um, but there's still a lot of cool stuff about that, which I'll mention. But when she says that, do you remember what Jesus did tell her about her life from last week? Like when she says, he told me all that I ever did, all that I ever did. Well, what was the all that I ever did? Jesus said, you're an adulteress. 
you know? It's not like, he told me all the good stuff I ever did. I feel so much better about myself. I didn't like, I didn't have this positive, high self-esteem view. And now he's helping me have a high self-esteem about myself. None of that is the opposite. He's saying, uh, this, you've had five husbands, the one you have now, you're, you're, you're sleeping with a man who's out of wedlock. And you sort of, you, and maybe there's other things too that aren't written down, but you read that in context here and you're thinking, how, how does she not like care about that? I mean, how does she have such a lightness and a happiness about her? This is, whatever you think is going on here, this is simply not a woman who is wrecked by shame. This is not the picture of a woman who is weighed by shame, right? You can at least agree on that. She has a lightness a, 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 about her, and, and I think that's what grace, when we really understand grace, uh, when the gospel penny drops in the machine and, oh, there it is um, in our heart, like, grace creates a lightness to us because the joy of salvation outweighs the shame of sin. That's just what it does. Uh, and, and so the solution to shame is not uh, anything else other than understanding the gospel better. That's the only way to overcome shame because it's, it has to come from him, not from something you try and you work for. It's just not going to work, at least as well. Uh, the, the, the solution comes from his hands, his, his hands alone. And this is the reality, guys, is love changed her. At the end of the day, she did not need, need to hear the seventh commandment shouted from Jesus. The seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments says, do not commit adultery. She didn't need to hear that. She knew it was wrong. She's not like, oh, thanks, Jesus. I didn't know that having sex with all these men out of wedlock was wrong until, until you told me. Like, she knew that. She didn't need to have that told to her. She, she knew it. She felt she was up to shame, uh, up to her eyeballs in shame. She didn't need to hear that shouted over her. She knew that it was a sin, but she needed to be loved. She needed to have love come to her and love her in spite of it. Do you see how that's changing her? Like saying to you guys, overcome sexual sin, try harder to abstain, will not work. It won't work. There might be moments of that when you're discipling people or in friendship with people, if, if it's really harmful to you, there's moments of that, but is that really going to work? Has it worked for you? Has, has reading books on overcoming pornography or sexual sin or whatever, like, is that, has that actually worked? It probably hasn't. Like, people come to me as a pastor because they're like, I've tried that. What else you got? I'm like, well, I do have a lot. I have the gospel. That, that's, you, you've forgotten your loved. And we, we talk much more about that than we do strategies Though we talk some about that. I'm not trying to be too, too binary here, but it, uh, it's 90-10. It's 95-5 in terms of percentage of time when it comes to strategy for, for overcoming. This is why. Love changed her. It's not like she, she was confronted with an option to keep having sex with men outside of wedlock or not. She knew that it was wrong and the gospel let her out of her prison and she couldn't wait to tell her friends about it. All right, the third thing we'll look at Jesus here is um, this statement of, I have food that you know nothing about. Um, the, so the disciples, remember, have been in town this whole time at Cub Foods buying groceries, and they come back with these bags, and they're like, what is going on? And, um, but Jesus says, and they offer him, they offer him uh, some food. That's kind of why they went. And, so, and then Jesus says, I have food that you know nothing about. And they're like, who gave him food? 
And Jesus is like, guys, that's a metaphor. You know, basically, I'm reading into it. But it's a lot, this happens a lot with Jesus, if you didn't know this, is, is he talks in metaphors, and the disciples don't realize it. Uh, Nicodemus was kind of like that a few weeks ago, if you remember that too. I thought you were talking plainly. He's like, no, it's a metaphor, yet again. Uh, but he's talking about a different kind of food, right? He's talking about the metaphorical food of doing the will of God. Uh, the will of God who sent him to accomplish God's work. And what is his work? It's the harvest of souls. It's saving people from hell. It's harvesting people um, as if they're like wheat uh, out of the ground, bundling them and carrying them into God's presence. That's kind of the picture, word picture that we, uh, it's an agrarian idea, obviously, but the word picture we get here. All right, so that's what we're seeing, though, already kind of happen in the conversion of some of the Samaritans, right? Um, By way of his Jesus is sowing of the seeds of the gospel and the woman's reaping. So Jesus is sowing seeds and softening hearts, opening eyes, uh, doing the hard, heavy lifting. The woman is starting to kind of reap some of the benefit of Jesus' work by saying, guys, this, this, is, this could be the Christ. And they believe, not because of her amazing evangelistic pitch, but because God was at work behind the curtains and saving people from their deadened state. So look carefully how this is written here. Uh, this is, you know, it's, I don't know if you guys have read this before. It's very common for Christians to read this passage and think that Jesus is telling us to get out there and work hard for the harvest. But who's working here? Who's doing the, who's doing the labor? Jesus is very, very clear that one person's working and the rest of us get to reap the benefits. The only one person works. And that person is Jesus himself. He's the sower. The disciples will later be the reapers, and yes, by extension, us, praise God. But Jesus is the worker, so that it can, it can be said of us, you reap what you did not work for. That's actually the, gospel, the broader gospel I hear before we get to um, maybe the, the, the practical shape that this gives to evangelism, is that you reap, you get things you didn't work for. It's like an inheritance, you, you get what someone else spent their whole life working for. That's just given to you. That's a biblical word for salvation because of the idea of work. The Bible is at pains through many and various word pictures to say, you bring nothing to the table. So be at peace. Be free. God wants you to know. He's not asking you anything. Nothing. He just wants you. He loves you. And if it wasn't love, he would ask you of something. If it wasn't love, he would demand Because the law screams and demands, but love speaks a better word, the Bible says in Hebrews 12. And so we know this, but we need to hear it. It's a great word for us, not just as evangelists, though it is, right? Um, If you guys uh, ever share the gospel with people, um, this is a very freeing idea. If this is true, this means that um, you don't have to hit a home run when you share the gospel with people. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to um, say things perfectly. You, you can say, I don't know a lot. Um, it, it means that you don't work for someone's soul, uh, right? I mean, again, this, to say it that way may, maybe sounds kind of obvious, but it's easy to think the opposite. Obviously, Jesus is the one who saves people. Um, we're just at best a conduit, but it's an exciting place to be, and, and it's, it's something he has for the church, is to be reapers, to go out there and, preach the gospel and share it and love people and then some people will start to respond to it and will start to reap and benefit from the work 
that Jesus does in saving us from our sins alone. On a broader level, though, um, this is bigger than evangelism. It means that in Christ, we reap what we don't work for, broadly speaking. It means we find what we don't look for and receive what we do not ask for. Um, That Romans 10 passage is, I think that's where Paul uses the word audacity, where he says, the prophets had the audacity to say that uh, people are being saved who weren't wanting to be saved. People are being found who weren't even looking for him. Oh, it's an offense, right? Some people who seem close to God are being rejected, yet those who are far away and who have their nose deep in things that are not of God and and they're a billion miles away, they're somehow understanding which is, uh, again, an- yet another way for the Bible to say that you're saved by grace, not by what you do, not by he seeks you, you don't seek him. He finds you, you don't find him. He comes your way, you don't go his way. Uh, if you believe the gospel, that's true. Uh, you, you have been, though you have not been seeking God, he has sought for you. Isn't that amazing? That's how much he loves you. That's, uh, maybe it's offensive, we, but it, it should be actually a little bit. Um, the gospel, if it's not offensive, is not the gospel at all because it's probably flattering you. Uh, it, like, like the woman here is not getting the self-esteem talk. She's getting actually the sin talk, but that leads to the Jesus talk, right? And it kind of goes and snowballs in a good way from there. But we live in light of the work of another. Uh, this is, I think, too, why on the top here, Jesus says, I have a food that you know nothing about. That's the exact same thing as saying, you don't know anything about salvation or how to save yourself because the food is the salvation of souls, right? So it's another way of saying um, everything that's needed is completely off your radar. Everything you need to be saved is is outside of your ability to accomplish. You, You know nothing about it until it's revealed and shown, until the curtain's pulled up and and then we can understand by the help of the Holy Spirit. But what we need is Jesus' death, right? On the cross for our sins. That's what you and I need. It's the only way to be saved, and that's what we know nothing about. So the main point to John 4 is to highlight the work of Christ. He's the sower. Uh, great uh, prophetic passage a lot of you guys have read in Isaiah 55 that is directly tied to John 4. It's from Isaiah 55 where God says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. All right, so the word in this passage is Christ. How can it not be? Where in the Bible is God's word, not his son? We've already seen this in John 1, right? This is not a generic idea of God, generically speaking. This is actually Jesus pre-incarnate or before he took on flesh. This is Jesus uh, before he came to earth. And it's a prophecy about him that Jesus would be sent from God and would accomplish the purpose that he was sent for. All right, so then... Um, we, what we see in this passage then, I think, is not just an idea or a transaction, but zeal. Uh, John Christostom said in the fourth century that when Jesus is talking about his food here, uh, it's, he says his hunger, Jesus' hunger, lies in the desire for our salvation. He's hungry 
for our salvation. He's being nourished by the idea that he's going to accomplish it. Do you guys know this? It's, it's man, it's, it's one thing to say the gospel's a transaction, it's a thing. We have to add this idea or we miss the idea of love. That, that um, what really gets Jesus up in the morning is the idea that he gets to save you. That's what this is saying. Isn't that great? That's what gets Jesus up. That's what excites, what, what, what satisfies his hunger is knowing that he is going to accomplish the salvation of souls, that God wants that much to save you and me. And so the question we're posed with is, do, do I know that? Do I believe that? That God loves me that much? Uh, that he's hungry for more than bread? He's hungry for the bread of my salvation. And so maybe like a subsequent freeing idea for you guys, contrary to what you may have heard in your Christian life elsewhere, is that being a Christian is not based on how hungry you are for God. It's based on his hunger for saving you. That's what makes you saved enduringly. Isn't that good news? So when you wake up and think, I don't know if I feel that hungry for God. I don't know if I feel like a love for him. In one sense, it does not matter in the slightest. It doesn't change your status at all with him. What you need is to come back to this idea. Don't try to manufacture a feeling for him. Come back to where your feelings find their source, the headwaters, which is knowing his passion for you outweighs your passion for him. That will never change. He didn't save you so that, well, maybe this person now will have a great passion for me as if he needs that. He doesn't need you. He loves you. He doesn't need you. Like a parent wouldn't say, I don't need my kids. If he's a father, well, shouldn't we apply this to God as well? God does not need you. He loves you. If he didn't love you, he maybe would have a utilitarian purpose. The Bible says we're not slaves, we're sons and daughters. What parent, again, says, I need my kid. Oh, let's, uh, I don't want to mow lawn anymore. Let's have a kid, Aletha. They can mow the lawn. Like, that, no one thinks that way. They can't anyway for years, right? So that, that's, you're not needed equals. You're loved. Receive from him. And the ultimate way all of this would manifest itself would be later in the story where Jesus would fast for us and work for us at the highest level on the cross. And, and you start to get a sense for that uh, elsewhere in John 4, where, in verse 44, where it says, that a prophet has no honor except in his hometown or amongst his brothers in Jerusalem. Uh, that, that is a, this is a nod here to his impending rejection uh, later in his life. Will be crucified for us. It was part of the plan. Um, that, though, was his true labor. He would sweat blood in, in earnestness in Gethsemane, and then he would not just be the seed sower for our salvation, like we talked about, but he'd also actually be the seed itself that dies and falls to the ground in order to produce life. Look what John, Jesus says in John 12. Um, actually, that might just be verse 24. 23, I think, says, or maybe not, whatever. Uh, right before this, it says, Jesus is saying, I'm about to, uh, the Son of Man, talking about himself, is about to glorify himself, speaking of his crucifixion, where Jesus is held up on a pole, the light of, light of the world, glory is coming. Uh, and then he says this, Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces fruit. It produces 
many seeds from that fruit, right? So do you, do you see what he's doing here with the metaphor of sowing? He, he's saying the, the idea inherent in me talking about a harvest at all, which is you and me being harvested to God, is that a death had to occur to grow our salvation in the first place. So this is a metaphor not just about evangelism, it's a metaphor about salvation. Because seeds are dead. Do you guys know that when you plant a seed in the spring? It's dead. It's not crawling in your, in your hand. It's dead. Right? It's not alive. And so the idea is that that death goes into the ground, it's buried, just like Christ was buried in the ground after he died. That's what produces the, light, the, the eternal life that you and I need to see God. The, the vine growth, the fruit growth of your salvation came through a death. That's what he's saying here. And it's suggested in John 4. When he's the sower, he's the worker, he's also the seed. He's the one who will die and be buried. And he wanted to, right? So this is not an aimless or generic sowing. It's the particular seed of his own death that the fruit of our salvation might be possible and we might be gathered up and back to God. And it's only then, you guys, uh, that we share in the labor of Christ, uh, reaping things we didn't work for, evangelizing the lost, praying for and working for conversions and baptisms, building, the, building up Christians in their most holy faith, as the scriptures teach. Uh, doing, doing that kind of ministry, that's, that comes after. And, it's, and we, we talk about that and value that as a church, not because it's the center, but because it flows out of this. Uh, and we believe that he has done the work and our, and our joy as Christians in all of that is tied to uh, the joy, the greater joy that he got when the cross was set before him, right, from Hebrews 12 and, and the joy that you see here in his hunger for, for our salvation. So there's a lot I could probably summarize these past three weeks here. I just want to say one thing that uh, came up today um, because it's so prominent and easily forgotten, and that is uh, John 4 is many things, but it's not less than the story of how much God wants to save you. If you don't believe that, or if you've forgotten, please believe it or know it. God is saying to us through the words, the written and preached words of John 4, that I have a hunger for you, that, that, that you would be saved. I want to gather you to me, and my son who is me, is, is the worker in the field. I'm coming to get you. I love you. I'm coming to rescue you. And the, the prophets announced it. The, the, the woman of Samaria is almost apostolic and a prophet here as well. It's one of the early prophets of announcing that the Christ is here, the one who is going to reconcile sinners to God at the highest of costs to him. When we're at our worst, he loves, he loves you guys and me so much, and it's such an injustice. It's so backwards. It's such a scandal. But he loves us so much that he sent his son to die like a seed and fall into the ground and be buried for you and me to carry our sins far, far away and to grow new life in our hearts into eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this, this passage, um, all that we talked about these past few weeks that you've helped us to see in your word. Um, we thank you for the gospel 
in this passage. Yet again, we see hints and glimpses, not just of um, a generic understanding of Christ being a Savior, but the how that pain and death and burial would have to accompany um, this love. It's, it's, it is the expression of love. Love always comes a sacrifice. You can't love without bleeding. You can't love without sweating. You can't love without doing hard work for someone else because you believe they're, they're more important than you, uh, than, than your comfort. And so we see that here in the seed and the fact that you're called, you call yourself the laborer, uh, Jesus, the one, and, and many other things too. But um, thank you for digging that well so deep, a well full of your blood. Uh, thank you for um, harvesting us and uh, we pray for more of that in our city, opportunities to be reapers of what you work for as we share the gospel and love non-Christians well. Help us to do that, looking at them the right way. Not that we're better, uh, but actually we're just the same, if not worse. Uh, and so um, we can look at them and pray and beg you and cry out to you to make them see what we didn't deserve to see but still see. And so give us that posture of humility and love uh, for people, certainly in the church, um, but outside as well. We pray for people in our city, um, more people to hear and believe and be saved. In Christ we pray, amen.